Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 38. Last week, I devoted the entire episode to the city of Gibeon, listed as a Levitical city and located within the territory allotted to Benjamin. I touched on that place a while back, but this was the time for the deeper dive. I also circled up in the legendary pool located just inside the city's walls, a place you can still visit today, and the site of a legendary battle among competing Israelites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with the city of Anathoth, also located in Benjamin, about three miles north of Jerusalem, a city that was given to the Levites and said to have pasture land. And with that, let's get started. The first thing you may notice about this place is that its name is really similar to the name of an Egyptian deity, Thoth. There was also a Canaanite deity, Anat, and the city may be a combination of the two. By now, you should know how things go with polytheism. In this case, the Egyptians would adopt Anat into their pantheon, likely during the period when the Israelites were living in Egypt. Some believe this Anat may have developed into the Greek goddess Athena, but there's another possibility for the name of the city. There was an Anathoth, who was the grandson of Benjamin, and who was also likely born in Egypt, and therefore was alive and died before the Exodus. The Levitical city in Benjamin could have been named for him. Unfortunately, other than sharing the name, the Old Testament text does not indicate that the city was named for this descendant of Jacob. Of course, it doesn't indicate that it wasn't either. There's another Anathoth mentioned in Nehemiah, but this was likely someone else entirely. There isn't much known about this place, but it does get a couple of mentions in the biblical text. It was the home of one of David's mighty men, a name given to his 30 best soldiers. For this warrior, his name was Abizer the Anathothite. Another of his soldiers, Jehu, was also from there. Do note, this Jehu isn't one and the same as a later king by the same name. David's son, King Solomon, would banish Abiathar the priest to Anathoth, telling him to go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you shared in all of the hardships my father endured. So, the priest wasn't only from that city, but also apparently very wealthy, or at least land-rich. Compared to who else was from there, those two are rather trivial. The more well-known resident was the prophet Jeremiah. As part of one of his prophecies, he told of a tribulation by the sword against the residents of Anathoth, who were plotting against him. This was after they threatened to kill him if he continued to prophesize. Both Nehemiah and Ezra told of how the city suffered after the fall of the territory to the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar. It was recorded that only 128 men returned to the city from the Babylonian exile. Fast forwarding a little, there are some Christians who believe that Jeremiah foretold that a field in or near the city would be bought with money given by the chief priest. 
This is the same money that Judas Iscariot returned after he had betrayed Jesus and before he hanged himself. This belief is based on passages found in both Jeremiah and the Gospel of Matthew. The one in Jeremiah reads, with my usual paraphrasing, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 18th year of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's control of the territory. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar's army was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was being held in the palace of the king of Judah in Jerusalem. So, he was in Jerusalem when it was under siege. Zedekiah was the king of Judah and said to Jeremiah, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I am going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon. So Jeremiah was telling the king of Judah that he was not only going to be beaten by the Babylonians, but afterwards taken as prisoner to that eastern city. So far, nothing about the New Testament. Then Jeremiah replied to the king, saying, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, the son of Jeremiah's uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, But my field that is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption by purchase, is yours. Then Jeremiah's cousin Hanamel came to him at the palace and said, Buy my field that is in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then Jeremiah knew that this was the word of the Lord. So he bought the field for seventeen shekels of silver. With the land came the deed to it. Jeremiah then had the deed sealed in a clay jar so that it would last a long time. Why? Because the God of Israel told him, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now, the normal historical interpretation of this passage, especially by Jeremiah's contemporaries, was that at some point the people would be free from Babylon and would be able to once again buy their land. Enter the Gospel of Matthew, who recorded, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. There, Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas then threw the pieces of silver in the temple and left, shortly afterwards hanging himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. After conferring, they used the money to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price for the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Before moving on, there are a couple of footnotes worth noting. The New Revised Standard makes mention that other ancient sources say this particular prophet could have been either Zechariah or Isaiah. 
the confusion about that could be in the part of Matthew that talks about the buying of potter's field. The very last part that I quoted, well, really paraphrased, is in the text in quotation marks, but it isn't a direct quote from the text of Jeremiah. The NIV also notes this issue, but in a different manner. Its footnote points to the passage in Jeremiah that I worked through earlier, but also to a different part of that same book, a particularly disturbing passage at the beginning of the 19th chapter of Jeremiah's text. In that, overall, Jeremiah tells of a field outside of Jerusalem, a place where God will break the people like a potter's vessel. His words. Then they will be buried in this field. Ergo, potter's field as a cemetery. The same footnote in the NIV also mentions that the minor prophet Zechariah mentions 30 pieces of silver being thrown into the treasury. While there's nothing exactly linking the two, or maybe three prophecies, it is a bit interesting, at least to me. Back to the city. There really isn't anything in the outside record about Anathoth, except that it has been tenuously identified as the Arab village of Anata, a link proposed by Edward Robinson. Robinson was relying, in part, on the same connection proposed by the 4th century AD Cyproite Bishop Epiphanius. And that's it for Anathoth. Moving along. Next up is the Levitical city of Heshbon, located in the territory of Gad, placing it east of the Jordan River and in the modern country of Jordan. Adding to the confusion about this place is that there were likely two different cities with the same name located in the same area within Gad. But before getting too stuck on that, when the territory was first divvied up, it was in the area given to Reuben, with Numbers 32 telling us that the Reubenites rebuilt the city, along with several others. What the text doesn't say is how it came to be part of Gad, except to imply that the boundary between Reuben and Gad was in a bit of flux. Wherever it landed, it was right on the border between the two. Also in Numbers, and mentioned again in Deuteronomy, Heshbon was said to have been the capital of the Amorite king Sihon. I covered King Sihon in Chapter 5, Episode 16 of the podcast released in January 2020. Later in the Old Testament, both the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah mentioned that Heshbon had been lost to the Moabites. How and when this happened is unclear. Finally, in the Song of Solomon, the writer and poet compares his love's eyes to the pools of Heshbon, probably referring to the color of the splendid fish pools found in the city. And that's it in the text. Before jumping into the outside record, a little bit about the city's name. Well, really, all of the names the city has been known as. Josephus would call it either Esbonitus or Sabonitus. He would also claim that it had been part of Judea since the time of Alexander Johnius the Maccabee, meaning between 106 and 79 BC. Alexander would seize control of the town, presumably from local Arabs, or maybe the Persians, or more probably the Seleucids. And after he seized control, he would make it a Jewish town. Not much later, Herod the Great was said to have had control over the town, even building a fortification there. Josephus would also record that Pharoris, 
Herod's younger brother, lived in the city, though it's unclear if this was really in Heshbon. More on that in a minute. Josephus would go on to describe the town as a strongly fortified garrison town. But recently, archaeologists have come to the thought that the place Josephus was writing about may have been a different city. In this case, you know, I was about to list out a handful of places that I'd likely mispronounce anyway, and that aren't found in the biblical text. So, I'll just use my editorial discretion and say the place Josephus was writing about was likely elsewhere. And the town he was writing about could possibly be the Roman, then Byzantine town of Espus. This one has been identified with a tell known in Arabic as Tel Hizban, or sometimes Tel Hespain. Those two names are close enough to Heshbon. Then again, that town could have been named after the Bronze Age town, just because a single person thought it was the ancient city. For now, I'll assume the Tel is the ancient city. On this tell are the ruins of an ancient Roman and Byzantine city, meaning dating from the late B.C. period to the first couple centuries A.D. It's about 12 miles, 20 kilometers, southwest of Amman, Jordan, which also places it some 6 miles, 9 kilometers north of Madaba, on one of the highest summits in the mountains of Moab. This is the same Madaba with the mosaic map I've referenced numerous times, Near the tell is what used to be a rather large ancient reservoir, but all that's left of that are its remnants. Also nearby is a fountain. During the Roman era, and just after the first Jewish-Roman War, so in the late 1st century AD, the territory being held by the Romans was invaded by a group that the 1st century AD Roman historian Pliny the Elder called the Arabs of Heshbon. What's unclear is where he got this name from. Essentially, did labeling them as being from Heshbon have any merit, or perhaps refer to a different place or people entirely? The second century writer Ptolemy would mention the town as being under the control of Roman Arabia Petria. And that's really it from the Roman era, not much at all. Heshbon would be more notable when the Byzantines controlled the region. During this period, and in the 1st century AD, Eusebius would record that it grew to be a noteworthy town located in the province of Arabia. It must have been noteworthy because in the same period, Heshbon appeared on the mosaic of Rehob. This mosaic is inlaid in the floor of the foyer of an ancient synagogue near Tel Rehob, about 4 miles, 7 kilometers west of the Jordan River, a mosaic floor that was not uncovered until 1973. Unlike other mosaics found in the region, the Rehob mosaic has very little ornate design and symmetric patterns. Despite this, it's considered unique due to its inscriptions. Researchers think it's one of the most important inscriptions discovered in Israel in the last century. Back in Heshbon, and still in the Byzantine era, two churches have been discovered, both of which also have impressive mosaic floors. What's even more interesting is that one of these mosaics shows motifs remarkably similar to floors found in the Nile region. Of course, there was plenty of contact between the Christians in this town and those in Egypt, and the broader cultures had been in contact for thousands of years. What makes it interesting is that it's one of the few mosaics in the region 
that shows influence from that far away. Most only show closer regional influences. One of the images embedded in the floor is that of a turtle dove sitting in a nest built atop an imaginary flower. Do note that turtle doves are native to the region, and also to Europe and North Africa. Imaginary flowers are, of course, native to nowhere. In the 7th century AD, the cartographer George of Cyprus referred to the town as the place where the milestones on the Roman road that led to Jericho began to be numbered. In my mind, Heshbon was mile marker zero. Also in that century, a resident, who was maybe a bishop named Theodore, received a letter from Pope Martin I. In that letter, Theodore was thanked by the Pope for his resistance to the heresy and encouraged him to continue the struggle and to work with John of Philadelphia. Apparently, Teddy was a strong advocate of the orthodoxy against monothletism, not to be confused with monotheism. Monothletism is the belief that Christ had only one will, that of the divine. It's the opposite of diophletism, that Christ was born both divine and human. This debate threatened to divide the early church, and Teddy, along with John of Philly, were on the Pope's side advocating Christ's two natures. In the same letter, the Pope mentioned that John of Philadelphia had been entrusted with the government of the patriarchs of Antioch and Jerusalem. This Philadelphia is that era's name for what is today Amman, Jordan, so not located far from Heshbon. Shortly after this, the Byzantines in the region would fall to the Arab Muslims, who would build the town up to be one of the largest in the region. There's nothing in the written record that shows it ever falling to the Crusaders, which certainly makes that part of the history simpler to cover. And that's the city Josephus, among others, identified as Heshbon. But I'm not quite done with it, as there's a problem with all of this. But before that, I need to touch on all of the excavation that has occurred on the tell. Beginning in 1968, archaeological excavations started at Tel Hespon and continued for about eight years, then paused for nearly 20. In 1996, the digs began again and continued through less than 10 years ago, meaning archaeological excavations occurred on the Tel for nearly a quarter century. And that's nothing unusual. What is unusual is that none of these uncovered any sort of artifacts before the Roman era, and certainly none from the Bronze Age, the period when the Israelites named it as a Levitical city. And of course, since it was named as a city in Joshua, it had been occupied even earlier, at least as far back as when Sihon was the king over the city and region. What all of this likely means is that the city identified by Josephus as being Heshbon wasn't. And that's it for the biblical city, yet another one lost to the passage of time. The last Levitical city I'll cover is Jazer, which will be quick, as there isn't really much known about it. It was another place east of the Jordan and in the territory allocated to Gad. Like many of the places I've covered, its exact location is unknown, though it was thought to be near Gilead and previously inhabited by the Amorites. Specifically, and as found in Numbers 21, Moses sent spies to Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. 
Though, do note that the wording makes it seem like the city was more than a single city, and at a minimum was a sizable enough town to have outlying villages. The Septuagint indicates that Jazer was on the border of Amman. This makes contextual sense given its location in Gad and the position in the text. Jeremiah 48, in some translations, mentions a sea of Jazer. This, though, is commonly thought to be a scribe's error, which is why it's left out of most translations. That, and also that Jazer was not near any body of water large enough to be considered a sea. Since it was a Levitical city, it likely had pastures for sheep and goats, and possibly cattle. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah mentioned vineyards, all of which are normal for the region. By the time David was king, it seems that the Hebronites had moved there, though we're never really given a reason why. In that part of the text, these Hebronites were said to have been men of great ability, whatever that means. And considering who David tended to ally with, they were likely warriors. Several of David's officers were based there as they conducted a census of the Israelites. To me, all of this indicates that Jazer was a significant city in the region. Like many of the places I've recently covered, Josephus had something to say about the city. And, remember to him, much of it may have been recent history. In the case of Jazer, he recorded that it had been captured and burned by Judas Maccabeus. Both Eusebius and Jerome would measure it as having been between 8 and 10 Roman miles west of Philadelphia which, remember, was where Amman, Jordan, is today. A Roman mile was a distance measured as 1,000 paces, which, of course, meant it was highly variable depending on who was doing the walking. The general consensus is that one Roman mile was about 5,000 feet, so 6% short of a statute mile, and about 1.5 kilometers. So, 10 Roman miles would be about 9.5 modern miles, in 15 kilometers, give or take. Eusebius and Jerome also noted that Jazer was about 15 Roman miles north of Heshbon, location still unknown. More interesting was that it was the source of what they called a large river falling into the Jordan. Modern researchers think this may be the modern Kerbet Essar, though some do think otherwise, like it seems some always do. This Kerbet Essar is an archaeological site in Jordan, essentially a western suburb of the modern Amman. And that's the last Levitical city I'm covering, and also the final place from Joshua 21. Joshua 22 begins with the book's namesake, thanking the eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, for keeping their word and aiding their brethren in conquering Canaan well, conquering at least most of the territory west of the Jordan. The actual words he used are a bit noteworthy, as you will find pieces of it in many church prayers. Joshua told the eastern tribesmen, Take care to observe the commandment and instruction that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. But the reason it's used in services today isn't because Joshua said it, but because Jesus did, and Matthew recorded it. 
In his 22nd chapter, he wrote that Jesus told the people that it was the greatest commandment, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the people, places, and things found in Joshua 22. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.